This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. I'm Seamus Byrne, coming to you from Gundungra land, and this is the Tech Pulse podcast, presented by Guardian Labs and paid for by Kindrel. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced on Gadigal land. The financial sector is in the midst of one of the greatest transformations since ATMs emerged 50 years ago. Money now flows most freely as numbers swapped seamlessly between digital ledgers, cash fading fast during a pandemic where physicality was to be avoided as often as possible. New standards for the financial industry have been slowly emerging at the same time. From open banking and MPP to blockchain and NFT, the conditions are ripe for new fintech challenges to rise up to take on the traditional institutions. EY's Fintech Australia Census in 2021 found 82% of Australian fintechs met or exceeded their capital raising goals last year. But what about the market in 2022? To help us take stock and look at the future, we have two of Australia's fintech industry leaders to discuss the challenges and opportunities for the Australian fintech sector. May Lam is Oceanic Fintech Leader and Asia-Pacific Payments Leader at EY Financial Services, and Michael Bromley is Group CEO at Stone & Chalk, Australia's leading fintech startup and scale-up hub. Also coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by Kindrel's Managing Partner of Banking and Insurance, Arnand Maestri, who highlights the importance of resilience and what traditional financial institutions can learn from fintech's customer-centric approach. May, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Seamus. Glad to be here. Uh, so, May, uh, the EY Fintech Australia Census for 2022 is very close to launch. What are some of the key trends that you've seen in this latest census? Thanks, Seamus. So, last year, we've seen that the Fintech Census, um, that as an ecosystem, has been a standout hero through the pandemic. As a sector that we no longer as a startup, but it was a scale up to grown up. So that kind of trajectory that we have been seeing in the latest um, this year census, which is yet to be published. Great. And then what external factors do you think are going to play the biggest role in the next phase of fintech evolution? The first is that the international expansion, that uh, it is growing. So last year, we see that 72% of the industry that have eyes on expansion. So we see that the target market has shifted a little bit, but that intention is still the same. So that's one. The second factor is that the government's uh, incentives and uh, supports that is, has been really welcome. And we said that we've seen that uh, the, the, the ecosystem has been tapping into that. And the third front is that's the need. So the needs of not only from the consumer perspective, but from the uh, SME market is also rapidly growing. Great. Now, Michael, uh, I'd love your thoughts on what stands out most for you over the past two years in fintech. <laughs> what a hell of a two years. Huh? <laughs> um, <clears throat> look, I, I think it's a couple things, but the, the first thing that comes to mind is resilience. The fintech sector has been incredibly resilient in a time of a lot of turmoil, both uh, 
uh, from the pandemic and the global geopolitical situation. But in, in the end, what, what I've seen is incredible advances in technology. Uh, the blurring of, of technology and finance continues. You've got AI and automation really making a lot of headway into fintech. You've got a lot more adoption happening at the large um, large end of town, and you've got a, and some consolidation as well, particularly here in Australia with some of the new digital banks being you know snapped up by some of the larger banks. And so, what originally started out as competition is really now coopetition uh, as the banks realize that. Digital banking is here to stay, that the the digital banks and the neobanks have really made a, a lot of inroads on things like experience and uh, focusing on specific capabilities that the large banks just didn't have down. And so they're acquiring or partnering more than ever. So those are the those are the, I think, headlines of the last few years. Great. Um, and I was going to ask you if uh, COVID or the economic turmoil has been more disruptive. I mean, I guess it sounds like both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big yes on both of those. Uh, but that, that's where that resilience comes in. I think if you look at Australia in particular, um, we've not really gone through real significant downturns economically, even through the GFC. We we kind of skirted the edges of that. So uh, it looks like so far we're doing the same here again. Let's hope that continues. But in the end, what happened with COVID was was a, a real disruption to the banks, to the big banks, learning to allow people to work from home. The back office operations were probably the most disrupted. A lot of that is off uh, offshore and in places like India that were really impacted heavily by COVID. So shifting and, and being able to pivot to allow some of that remote working for back office operations was was huge, huge disruption for the banks. Whereas the economic crisis is having a bigger impact on startup fintechs, where you know the money's just not flowing as much as it was, and when it is, the valuations are nowhere what they used to be. So there, there's a lot going on, but I don't think you could say one is winning over the other. COVID and the economic crisis are probably both hammering the financial sector and, and fintechs in general. This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. Uh, now, May, uh, you know, given your perspectives both at the local and regional level, I'd love your thoughts on you know, how does the Australian fintech sector stack up compared to you know, international fintech markets? Yeah, sure. So Vinta has grown um, from $215 billion market in 2015 to $4 billion industry as of last year. So from that perspective, that's Vinta, it is growing very quickly. Also, that's the other part is that the external or global grown-up fintech or scale-up fintech, they see Australia as a great launchpad for them as well. So it will increase the competition in this market. And at the end of the day is that the innovation actually drives competition and drives um, the, the financial inclusion for this market. Mm. Michael, I'd love your thoughts on that as well from your side of it as, you know, focused on how these companies here in Australia are trying to both, I guess, operate locally and see if they can extend themselves abroad. 
Yeah, look, I think Australia's reputation in the global market for fintech is is very strong. Uh, you can see that with the Afterpay deal and and some of the others that have happened over the over the past several years. And the intent for fintech to expand overseas still remains incredibly strong. We lead missions overseas all the time with with our, some of our cohort uh, to try and find opportunities, and we're doing. Uh, a lot of work with international governments and agencies to open landing pads and create pathways because the demand here is high. What we find is that the market in Australia is progressive. It is very uh, sophisticated, but the market is small. And so what happens is it's a great proving ground and it's a great launch pad. And a lot of international players see that for what it is and are looking to exploit that in a positive way. And, and, you know, we hope that continues. Fantastic. May, I'd love your thoughts on how the open banking and uh, payment platform standards are progressing and are there examples out there of transformative products that are appearing that might be reshaping customer experiences? Yeah, definitely. So first, I would like to talk about the consumer data rights. Um, so Australia that is leading from the world perspective that we are moving beyond banking. So to the telco, to the utility, to insurance. And now RBA is intending to look at the possibility of extending the CDR to the merchant acquiring services as well. So this is the great news because um, through the pandemic, we see that the SME, the small and medium enterprises, are the lifeblood of Australian economy and it's equate to 98%. So all this data that being open, so I think the, the term of open banking has moved beyond from banking to open finance to open data now. So it creates a lot of opportunities. So that's one factor. And the second factor that we've seen is that the consolidation, the merger of the three domestic payments route, so the FPOS, the BP, and the MPPA. And it is also a great news of supporting what is that digital economies look like in the future. Yeah, Michael, yeah, what are your thoughts there on, on these standards? And yeah, I guess what's showing great promise and maybe what's not quite uh, you know, coming to fruition? Yeah, I think standards are progressing. I think that's a good thing. And I think Mab was spot on by saying that we're here in Australia, doing our part to lead the world in that. And you're seeing some benefits. You're seeing platforms that are not traditional banking platforms, but more modular open banking architected platforms like 10X, for example, uh, where you can plug and play modules into and out of the banking platform, allow externals to have access to certain data that's quarantined and allowed to, to, to develop better experiences or better services or slightly different models and commercial models. And I think that's really positive. We're seeing that uptake fairly slowly, and that's not overly surprising given the financial regulation in the banking sector. But we're also seeing some parts of the sector really moving quickly. Payments in particular are moving really quickly. And so with NPP and the open banking standards that are starting to evolve, we're starting to see a lot of innovation in payments coming through. I think once we start seeing the, the larger banks start to adopt some of the standards and the technologies, we'll start seeing more as well going on overseas. Yeah, May. Now, Michael kind of mentioned you know, some of the regulatory factors that might mean that banks are a little bit slower to move on some of these things. You know, do you have a sense of, I guess, what those risks can be for banks in pursuing more flexibility? Or you know, are there some places they can't go, which are the opportunities for, for fintechs? 
Yeah, so banks do have a lot of assets to provide. And hence to the early point that Michael made about the consolidation, collaboration, cooperation, we see a lot in the markets. So Ben is in the great place to leverage this ecosystem capability to collaborate further. And we imagine what is the role of the bank in the future and how can they play to their strengths and accept uh, the partnership with the ecosystem can create revenue streams. So not only just lowering the cost um, or protecting, but that's a lot of opportunity for banks that's putting into the compliance obligation into compete. So I think the message to banks is that think about compliance to compete and creating revenue stream, new business model by collaborating with the fintech ecosystem. Yeah, now, Michael, I know, you know, as you as has been mentioned, that idea of collaboration versus the challenges. I know there's also some tension there, clearly, where we want some of these new businesses to succeed and not just necessarily be sort of bought out over time. And we've seen a few of those kind of buyouts. You know, and what's your sense of that tension in order to you know, have some of these things rise up and not just have them swallowed up? Yeah, it, I think you've said it perfectly. There is a tension there. And you're absolutely right. One of the things that we want to see from a, a competition point of view and a progressive advance of technology and experience point of view is we want to see some of these neo-financial institutions succeed and, and grow and build on their own. It's tough, though, the, you know, especially in this economic climate, you're looking for capital and the capital could come from the banks. Uh, valuations are, are not what they used to be from the VC world. Uh, particularly in Australia, we're still a little too risk averse in the venture capital space and therefore money is not necessarily flowing the way it could be. So yeah, the, the startups and the scale up in the fintech industry are being more and more enticed to partner with the large banks and the banks are looking more and more to partner. So there's good in that, certainly. I think we need to bring the Goliaths into the modern era, but I think we also absolutely need to keep some of these smaller players pushing and innovating and creating those death by a thousand cut threats that actually makes the the larger institution respond and react and grow their own technology and capabilities internally. So um, hopefully this economic crunch isn't long long lived. Uh, but the longer that goes on as a as a crunch, the more likely we're going to see more and more acquisition or partnerships with the larger institutions, and that's going to thin out the the playing field from the from the progressive innovation that's happening at the uh, fintech level. So it's a bit of a race against time. I would actually like to add on that one. So um, as a lot of fintech come to the market, it's because of solving a particular problem or honing into a segment. So one thing that I think the bank can do is that when they look at the partnership with the fintech is to amplify what is that segmentation that they can actually use their strength to cross-pollinate. So it's helping to solve the problem that in the market that we've seen. As mentioned earlier, that SME is 98% of Australia's uh, businesses. So that's a huge market and that's also a real challenge that together fintech and bank can help to solve. Yeah, fantastic. Um, now, also, I think, Michael, I'd love your thoughts on building that trust with consumers themselves, because clearly a lot of that trust is in traditional banking institutions. How how do new startups and particularly scale-ups 
in the fintech space encourage you know, ordinary Australians to adopt and not just those early adopters who are ready to to play? Uh, are there you know good examples or good ways in which you communicate that idea to to uh, fintechs? Yeah, first I'll challenge the initial thought there. Uh, I don't think most Australians feel that happy with their bank, regardless of who it is. Uh, nobody loves their bank. And Australian banks, because there are so few of them and there's so little urgency to change and grow, in some areas are, are behind the times and some areas, you know, we're, we're doing well. So I don't think the trust factor is the key issue here. I think a lot of Australians are willing to put some of their money in a neobank uh, we've seen, you know, 86400 did a really good job of getting a lot of assets under management. The profitability was their issue, and that's why they sold out to NAB. Um, and, and others are struggling uh, with the profitability point of view as well. But I think what we've seen with some of the neobanks, even the ones that didn't make it, is raising assets wasn't the problem. It was finding a way to be profitable while doing that. One of the areas that the neobanks and the fintechs went after and went after hard was the experience. Dealing with your bank is is generally a pain in the butt, no matter what. Um, so a better experience on an app or online and an application or uh, an experience built around the, the user or the customer goes a long, long way toward building trust. And the fact is that most people look at the large banks being in business for themselves, and they look at the potential for the fintechs and these neobanks who are building around the customer experience to say, oh, well, this is how I want to experience my financial transactions. And so they're making great strides in that, and that's allowing them to, to raise assets. The next big step, as I mentioned, though, is to, is to do so in a profitable way so they can stay in business independently, as we talked about a moment ago. Uh, now, look, a couple of closing thoughts from you both. Uh, May, I'd love your thoughts on whether there are you know, any particular government levers that need to be applied to ensure things keep moving forward, uh, particularly, I guess, in light of, of the potential for a downturn? Yeah, so uh, I think from the government perspective, our census is really welcome of the incentives. So whether it's monetary or non-monetary. So from the funding sourcing perspective that this year, what we're seeing that is about 20% of the fintech see that uh, the government is one of the funding source. And so that's great. I think there's one area I need to continue. And then the other one is that the non-monetary term, so non-financial. So how can build more relationship introductions and getting the reputation of Australia to go uh, expansion as well? Because international expansion, it is on the agenda and it is something that are uh, fast growing. Uh, to understand the different jurisdictional regulatory landscape, etc., is something that from the government perspective is definitely grow. Um, so, yeah, that will be there from the government angle. Excellent. Michael, your thoughts on any of those uh, government conditions that might uh, help things? Yeah, I think when it comes to regulation, I think May called it out earlier, we're 98% small business in this country, and regulation tends to disadvantage small business at a higher rate than large business. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to continue to layer on lots of regulation. What I think we need to do really instead is look at incentives and create value propositions with the government leading the way to creating new business and sustaining new business uh, and making it easier for small businesses to do business in this climate and in this country. Um, 
So uh, I think regulation is important. It's critical. It's a it's financial services. It has to be there. But we can go leaner and we can look more at the positive side. Regulation is all that is always looking at the negative side. Let's look at the positive and create incentive. We want ingenuity and innovation in this industry to continue to flourish. Let's create reasons to do that. And that's where the incentive programs tend to go. Now, look, I don't want to make anybody predict the future, uh, particularly in this space and in these kinds of times, but uh, I'd love your thoughts on what you think are some of the, I guess, the possibilities or the things you hope to see in the next couple of years. Michael, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, the finance sector is one of the most exciting in the world right now, um, and it's probably never been a better time ever in history to be in fintech. You've got cryptocurrency, you've got blockchain, and you've got distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs as they're called, all converging and taking interesting positions in the in the financial world. For me, the, the biggest potential disruptor is the disintermediation of the classic banking institution using something like blockchain, for example, to to secure transactions with smart transactions. Uh, there, there's opportunities to transact without the need for a centralized banking system. And that's going to create more and more disruption. I think the large banks will adopt and adapt. Um, but then you've got the further push of cryptocurrencies, which are starting to, again, become disintermediated platforms. And then you've got this concept of no real centralization whatsoever in the distributed autonomous organizations. You know, these are the really exciting uh, thresholds that banking right now is is seeing, and I've never seen that many really transformational technology and commercial model options at one time impacting the financial world. Uh, so it's it's fascinating. I have you, you, thanks for not making us predict it because there's no way I could. Um, <laughs> you look at Web three, and you 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 know you suddenly you've got maybe four really interesting platforms now coming through. Um, and the future of technology continues to push that envelope. The next frontier after that might be quantum computing and what impact will that have on the banking system? So, you know, wow, four or five different major disruptive technology growth um, sectors going on at once at a time when, you know, the world is hungry for it. I can't wait to see how it plays out, but definitely not going to take a shot at predicting it. May, what are your thoughts on uh, what the next few years might hold or what you hope to see uh, evolve over the next few years? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I would like to uh, echo to what Michael said. So it's quite hard to follow. But um, yeah, it is a very exciting time. But also what I want to call out is that besides the technological advancements, that there are still other very powerful forces that are shaping the businesses, the society, communities and people's lives, like the shifting of the economic power the environmental shift, the population change, and also the individual sentiments and values also be evolving. So all these forces is going to change how the world will be look like in the future. And one thing that would like to call out is that what happened if every company is a fintech company? What is that the world, the society, and the, the traditional banking um, services will look like? It is projected to be seven trillion US dollar of a market by 2030, which means that the non-financial services are started to provide financial services. We see that the giant supermarket and the consumer sector is now providing financial services and better finance and better insurance and better payments. 
all these needs are become invisible and compound with the technological advancement like the hyper automation, AI, machine learning, and what Michael mentioned about the the DLT and the 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 world of a metaverse. I think the world is、um, beyond imagination. And、uh, the thought here, or the last message is here, that I think innovation is is continuum. So, what are you? What is your plan? What is the strategy? How can you continue to be relevant and serve the market? Fantastic! Look, May Lam and Michael Bromley, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. Really enjoyed being here, Shamus. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. To think a little more deeply about what's going on in the financial services sector, we're now joined by Anand Maestri. He's the managing partner for financial services industry segment at Kindrel. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It's an exciting topic. Yeah. Now, I'd love if you do have any thoughts. You've you've listened to our two guests there.、Uh, if you you want to reflect on some of what they were talking about. You know, I, I did, and I thought both May and Michael had really good insights into what's happening in the market. And I also liked the fact that neither one of them wanted to make any projections as to what could occur, because as you and I both know, this market is evolving dramatically. One of the things that I did reflect on was they both talk about resilience as a key element that you know the financial service industry should be acutely aware of. And so I, I think as we go through it. You'll find me pivot to some of those points because I think that really does lend itself to the migration from traditional to fintech, and then the amalgamation of it, and how they augment and help each other. But resilience then becomes a grounding factor, which allows them to still provide the customer centricity, but still provide the quality of service, still provide new ways to work through with NPPs. What are they doing with that? So I really liked the way they both shaped that.、Um, obviously, slightly different views, but they landed very similar around the same things.、Mm. So, you know, what are your thoughts there on on what banks and fintechs should be looking at as part of their path through the next few years? I think not so much. What they should be looking at in the next few years, I think the, you know, you have to build foundations, and building a solid foundation, which then allows you to build upon it, is fundamental for them. So we look at what's going on from traditional institutes now into moving into a lot of the fintechs providing some of the, the smarts around immediacy of cash, for example, because you know one of the things that you and I talked about previously, Seamus, and that is, transactions used to end. When somebody walked up and paid you with cold hard cash, there was an exchange of goods, an exchange of currency, and that was the end of the transaction.、Uh, now it's no longer that.、Um, you know, when I walk up and exchange goods for my tapping, that transaction then takes a life of its own. So, what the decision makers need to do, and that is, how do they handle that environment? Because in perpetuity, that transaction still exists, whether it's the data that's captured. The PCI associated with it, you know, the DSS associated with it, and I think that becomes something that they should be building a strong foundation on, which then allows them to provide all these additional amazing services, which the fintechs are bringing to market very quickly and moving away from the traditionals. And look, I think there's a really important point there too, as you say, that with so much of this change in and what it means to make a transaction, that clearly fintech now impacts not just on customers. Uh, but also every business, in a sense. You know, I'd, I'd love if you have any thoughts there on what maybe other business leaders should be taking from today's fintech space. You know, I think the customer experience bit、uh, really starts to、um, get a different lens.、Uh, 
Um, and so, so let's look at it. And I've got aging parents. So I'll use them as an example. They thrived on the fact that they had a personal, intimate relationship with their banker. Um, when I look at myself and then I look at my children, um, they pride themselves on being able to choose. They have the right of choice. They have the right of flexibility. And they will forego that intimacy to get a better quality service that they have more control over. So I think other leaders can learn from those lessons and go, you know what? If you are moving away from that hardcore face-to-face, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination downplaying the value of that, I'm just go that the market has evolved. And when I look at what consumers are now accepting as a benefit for them, and that is I no longer want to stand in front of somebody if I can do it on my own time, get a better quality of service, and even share more information about myself to get that better quality of service, that's what other businesses should be looking at and going, okay, apart from the the service industry, you can actually do this through technology and you can do it through a very well-contained technology set that gives consumers a better experience. And I think that becomes something that they should embrace. Mm. Um, So I guess as a last thought, you know, uh, do you have any other perspectives on how tech can enable, I guess, smarter progress in the face of so much economic uncertainty? You know, there's, there's a good and bad in all tech. You and I both know that. There is a, a fear, uncertainty, and doubt around uh, how much of my data is collected, what are they doing with my data, how much of it's going to be uh, compromised, and what happens then. So that's the ugly side of thing. The smart side of thing is you get a better quality of service. You can fast track the quality of service. They know that you like to sit on an aisle seat when you fly domestic. They know that you want a particular meal. They know that you have four vehicles in your house and you actually only drive two of them, but you do have an underage driver, or they do know that you've had no accidents. Or they So these sort of things start to give you the benefit of a better experience. So when I look at it and I go, these are some of the things that's of the benefit. And when you look at what are the the negatives associated with it, I think the benefits far outweigh it. Now, that's why we have regulatory bodies in place to say, this is how you treat things properly. This is how data has a life. This is how it expires. And then this is how you can use things to shape a better environment for your clients and give them that better experience, mitigate that risk, make them feel comfortable, make them feel like they're the special person that walks in that door, even though it's a virtual door. I think that's where we should be looking at in terms of what we can benefit from this. And, you know, traditionals in the fintechs have given us the first insight to that because they've changed the way we, we work. And if they work together and that's working, why can't other industries? Fantastic. Anna Maestri, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Seamus. It's been a pleasure. For more conversations like this, search for Kindrel Tech Pulse podcast on Guardian Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced by Guardian Labs Australia. It's hosted by Seamus Byrne. The Guardian Labs producers are Alison Tanner-Disastro and Jody Weatherup. The executive producer and Guardian Labs head of content is Justine O'Donnell. Our sound recordist is Dan McHugh. Our sound editor is Mel Chun. And the Tech Pulse podcast is paid for by Kindrel.